It'll come in from the cold and thaw out. Well, if you weren't here last night, my name is Reverend Mark Vanderpoel, and I have the privilege to serve along with Reverend Stromberg here at the Linden, Linden United Reformed Church, and welcome to our facility for the second day of this conference. We're looking forward to another great day after some good lectures last night. Um, if you weren't here last night, and if you need to use the restroom, they're out the back door and to your left. Um, also, if you have any questions concerning what the speakers have been talking about and you would like to ask them a question, there's a box in the back where you can um, address your questions to the speakers and we'll do that after the last lecture. The other announcement to make is if, if you are so led to help contribute to the cost of this conference, there's also a box in the back for donations and we would appreciate those, but this is a free conference, so no, no pressure. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to have Dr. Clark speak to us about Martin Luther specifically. Last night we, we set up the, the Reformation and why it was necessary. If you weren't able to come last night, those videos are available on our website and on YouTube, so you can watch those um, from, from last night and today as well, they're all gonna be recorded. So today we have Dr. Clark speaking to us about Luther under the law, pre-1519. When I told Reverend Stromberg what the titles for Dr. Clark's lectures were this morning, he got ecstatic. Luther under the law, Luther under the gospel. It's gonna be the two great lectures. So let's welcome Dr. Clark. I was just picturing Mark ecstatic. There needs to be a safety barrier around him. I don't see him anywhere, so maybe I'm okay. Oh, there he is. <laughs> he, uh, he caught me. <laughs> All right. So, Norm, you, uh, you're going to be my bodyguard. <laughs> One time, uh, we, had, uh, we, have a couple of, we had a couple of football play, American football players at, at, at school at the same time. Mark McVeigh, who's our admissions coordinator, and then Pastor Mark. And, and I was coming down the hall, and they were side by side coming down the hall the other way. And I, I said, hold on, men. And I, I said, just stand right there. And I got down in a three-point stance, and I looked up. I just wanted to see what it would have looked like to <laughs> run into those guys. <laughs> made me glad I wasn't. Uh, uh, made me glad I was a basketball player. All right. Um, well, what a beautiful place this is. It's nice to see it in the daylight. It a, what a gorgeous town. Oh, I bet it's even prettier when the sun comes out. Do you? What do you? Is it like is the sun being held hostage, or does it come out sometime? I don't know. What are the rules? Well, this morning, um, we wanted to do uh, two things. Uh, the first session, we want to talk about Luther under the law uh, from uh, his birth, uh, probably in 1483, to, uh, to the point where he said that, his, uh, that he had his Protestant breakthrough in, uh, in 1519. So we'll walk you through uh, how that happened. Luther's not an easy fellow to interpret. Yeah, he's, as I said last night, one of the most difficult figures to uh, understand in the whole history of the church in, in some ways, one of the most important figures in the history of the church, one of the five most important figures probably in the last millennium. Well, there's almost as much written about Martin as there is about Jesus, <clears throat> not to suggest that they're uh, of equal importance, but just to give you an idea of how much there is to read uh, about um, Luther. And he is a complex figure, and in that way, uh, difficult. Uh, all, we, all we have to do is think about, for example, his um, later rhetoric, right? There's Luther's, uh, his later rhetoric about the Jews, right? The, uh, 
what is not always remembered is that uh, Luther said a lot of things about the Jews, and he said them over a period of time, and he said them in a particular context, but what happened in the 20th century and what continues to happen, and even in the Reformation celebration, was just that people pick on statements that he made uh, later in his life and then draw a straight line from, from him to Hitler, which scholars who are responsible scholars know that that's uh, no way to uh, interpret Luther. However, problematic without excusing uh, that, that language, but uh, uh, Luther wasn't writing uh, you know, two years or 10 years or even 100 years uh, before Auschwitz. He was writing centuries uh, before Auschwitz. And uh, whether one can draw a straight line is a, is a very serious question indeed, and, and I doubt that. Uh, there is not, uh, how do I say this? There's not unanimity as to even uh, when Luther uh, became, a, or, or when Luther became a Protestant, or even in some cases, whether he became a Protestant. There is a body of scholarship uh, with which I'm not in agreement and by which I'm not much impressed, but which has influenced some people, a group of Finnish scholars, uh, have, have uh, argued that Luther actually didn't really ever become a Protestant in the way that we ordinarily think of it, and, it's the way, and in the way I'm going to define it this morning. Uh, some people date his turn to Protestantism as early as 1512, uh, and as I say, some as late as 1519. Uh, we'll come back to that. that the, the first group is wrong, um, and I'll explain why that is. Uh, just some, uh, some basic facts about Luther. He was born in Eisleben in County Mansfield in Saxony, which is in north-central Germany, and he spent his whole life in a very small area. He was a small-town boy who never uh, left home but once. Uh, at least uh, he, made a, he made a one very long, and, and I think, and I think maybe Bob takes a somewhat different interpretation, but I, I think his trip to Italy, his trip to Rome, uh, was a turning point in his life. Otherwise, he spent uh, his life in a, rel in a relatively small uh, area. So a boy from a small town in the backwoods can make a big difference in the world, and he did. He, uh, he actually thought that he was born in uh, one year and on one date, and, and uh, Philip Melanchthon disagreed and calculated, uh, partly through um, astronomy, uh, his... Um, his birthday to be uh, about 10 November, 1483, and uh, he was baptized and given his Christian name, Martin, uh, the next day on St. Martin's Day, and that's the date that scholars typically adopt. He was born to a fairly prosperous family, prosperous enough that they were able to send him uh, to university, which uh, almost no one was able to do. And, and uh, we use these words uh, like university to describe uh, places where uh, people studied in this period, and, and when I say university, you're thinking of University of Washington or some place like that, some giant school with tens of thousands of people and multiple buildings. No, you, you need to think of something much more like a really small rural high school is what we're talking about. We're talking about a very small place with uh, a very few uh, students indeed and they were it was only a university because they had multiple faculties but these were not giant institutions um, so again Luther lived in a small uh, a small world but his uh, dad uh, was relatively prosperous in the mining business dad wanted to be going to the law right there were just a few faculties in the university that uh, by this point theology which was the queen of the uh, of the sciences the, the uh, head of all the faculties there was an arts faculty, think basically of your English department, 
So the Bible department, English department, um, there's a law faculty and a medical faculty, and so law was a way uh, to a prosperous life uh, then as now. He matriculated in the University of Erfurt in 1501, and uh, he did his undergraduate studies there, uh, learning uh, uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. He learned grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the, and the word used to describe that is the trivium. Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And it, this is easy to remember. Every time you learn something, you always have to learn the, uh, the stuff, how the stuff works, and how to talk about the stuff. That's what he learned in university. Uh, he learned uh, basically language and uh, how to think clearly, how to make arguments clearly, right? and, uh, and then how to, uh, how to be persuasive. So facts, how things work, and how to be persuasive. And every time you learn something, you always have to learn grammar, logic, and rhetoric. If you wanted to learn how to fix your own car, if you were so inclined now to dare to open the hood right, and take on that bewildering <coughs> array of, of electronics, right? what used to be uh, uh, very simple, thinking of my 1960 Volkswagen, right? open up the back and take a hammer and whack it a few times. Uh, now you, you have to certainly have to have a computer to work on a car now. Well, um, if you wanted to do that, you'd have to learn all the names of all the parts. Right? You'd have to, and you have to memorize that. You have to know that. And then you'd have to find out how they fit together and how they work together. That would be the logic. And then you'd have to learn how mechanics talk about these things in order to communicate. Right? So that's, you do that all the time, and that's what Luther did in university, and it's called the trivium. His, his training was designed to equip him in the skills of oral debate, uh, to think on his feet, and to think uh, clearly and systematically, and to make arguments that were clear and systematic and persuasive. In 1505, he was made Master of Arts in the university, and, uh, he, uh, and in that course of study, which was uh, uh, longer actually, the BA was actually a fairly short course, uh, he was reading Aristotle, uh, reading Aristotle in uh, Latin for the most part, but reading Aristotle for himself, uh, courtesy of the Renaissance, uh, not just reading summaries of Aristotle or little bits of Aristotle, but reading him pretty widely. He also learned um, numbers, basically. Uh, they studied, uh, it's called the quadrivium, so these are the seven liberal arts, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and then music, math, geometry, and astronomy. So Luther got a, a, a good classical, in some respects, classical education, but as I say, some of, the, some of, his, of his undergraduate education was uh, somewhat uh, radical. And it was uh, after he had finished his MA, he had gone home, and he was on his way back to Erfurt, about 50 miles south of his hometown. Uh, so it was a, a, you know, somewhat, probably a two and a half, three-day trip, right, if you're riding on a donkey. Uh, anybody ride? I bet, I bet somebody up here rides horses. Um, how long do you want to sit on a horse? Uh, 20 miles on a horse? A very experienced horseman might ride a horse for 20 miles, right? Otherwise, uh, it certainly, trust me, the first time you get on a horse, you don't want to go for 20 miles because you, you won't walk for weeks. <laughs> So, uh, so it was a long uh, travel in those days, very difficult. He's sitting on a donkey and has to go 50 miles, so we're gonna give him a few days to make that trip. Uh, and 
as he was on the way, he was caught in a thunderstorm, as you know, and during the thunderstorm, uh, there was a lightning uh, strike near him, and he was thrown to the ground, and in terror, he cried out, Saint Anne, who's the uh, patroness, right, the saint for minors, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. Uh, now, as to exactly what happened in that instant, nobody really knows, but that is the story, and it seems at least possible that um, uh, Martin had religious interests, and this was an opportunity to leverage his dad, having sworn an oath to St. Anne. There was no way of, of going back on that, and so he, um, he honored that vow, and uh, after a final party with some friends at school, he entered an, uh, an observant Augustinian, sometimes called a Black Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt on 17 July, 1505. And uh, about two years later, he was ordained to the priesthood. This is not a socially advantageous move for young Martin, uh, becoming a monk. Um, I don't know if you have, do you have this here? Uh, people standing outside of Target and uh, Walmart and whatnot um, uh, harassing you for, for money. Um, always with an expensive uh, smartphone in their left hand. It's always a dead giveaway. Why are you asking me for money? What, you have a smartphone, get away from me, right? I remember not, I remember not having a smartphone. I remember eating Velveeta on, uh, on Wonder Bread, you know? So that's, that's much closer to poverty than a $1,000 smartphone in your left hand. Well, anyway, so the way I think about uh, the, these um, organized groups of people, which is what they are, hitting you up for money on the way out of Target, um, uh, tr trust me, I, I, I know these things. Um, talk to law enforcement, they'll tell you what's going on. Um, uh, the way we regard those folks, right, who are playing on your guilt, so people regarded monks. Because a lot of the monks were mendicants, they were beggars. And they were considered lazy and, and unproductive. And they, you were supposed to subsidize their piety. Actually, there's a good corollary to this or parallel to this in, uh, in uh, Israel. The, the, uh, the, the Hasidic, the Orthodox Jews, in, particularly in Jerusalem, are not well regarded because they don't participate in civil life, they don't pay for things, they don't serve in the military, everybody else has to serve, and all they do is sponge. And a lot of people, uh, and they actually have a lot of authority over uh, daily life in Israel, which is supposed to be a secular state, and people uh, find them very irritating. Uh, so it's a similar relationship here to the monks in the early 16th century. So dad was not happy, and, uh, and, th and this was not, as I say, a socially advantageous move. But he took his monastic duties quite seriously this morning. Uh, I was reminding myself of the, of the, um, the rule of St. Uh, Augustine, and uh, it actually wasn't as harsh as I remembered. I think the practice of it was, was more rigorous uh, than the theory this is uh, actually a rule written by St. Augustine. Uh, and it sort of, you know how we have a church order, right? United Reformed Churches. Well, every monastic order had a rule. They had a kind of a, uh, of a church order. Uh, these are the things, this is uh, when you do things and how you do things and, and so forth. It's actually not very long. Um, uh, and I, I'll just read a, a couple of them. Uh, number two says, therefore call nothing your own, but let everything be yours in common. So there were, there's no such thing as private property 
in, in the Augustinian order to which you belong. Food and clothing shall be distributed to each of you by your superior, not equally to all, for all do not enjoy equal health, but rather according to each one's need. And so at least it's communalism, if not communism. Uh, we didn't have the first part from, uh, uh, as uh, in Marx's formula. For uh, so you read in the Acts of the Apostles, and it quotes Acts 4, 32 and 35. Um, number 14 says, subdue the flesh so far as your health permits by fasting and abstinence from food and drink. And then it goes on to make an exception. Um, however, when some are, some are unable to fast, they should still take no food outside mealtime unless uh, they are ill. And then there are uh, strict rules. This is uh, a, obviously a, a male monastery, strict rules about um, contact with the opposite sex. Uh, if anybody, uh, for example, received a letter in secret from a person of the opposite sex or small gifts of any kind, you ought to show mercy and pray for them if they confess this uh, of their own accord. But if the offense is detected and they are found guilty, they must be uh, more severely chastised according to the judgment uh, and so forth. And you, you, get a, you get the idea. There were uh, rules about, uh, in uh, some of the monastic orders, uh, about when to get up and pray. It, uh, it, I didn't find it in, in uh, St. Augustine's, but typically monks would get up at, uh, uh, pray at 9 p.m., pray at 2 a.m., pray again at 6 a.m., and, uh, and you, you had to keep these regular canonical hours of prayer. And they would gather together, uh, sometimes uh, at 2 in the morning, to sing a psalm. Uh, or in some cases, a hymn. Uh, one of the good things about the monastic orders is they kept psalmody alive in the church. Uh, the monks memorized the psalms and copied the psalms and transmitted the psalms and sang the psalms. So they did have that going for them. But it was a very rigorous life. And Martin took his monastic duties very seriously. Uh, it was a radical step and uh, almost certainly for the purpose of discovering a way of satisfying a hidden and apparently capricious, holy, dangerous, righteous God. And he did well in his monastic duties. Within uh, 10 years, he was made a vicar and placed in charge of 11 monasteries uh, so that his, his uh, gifts were recognized in that way. In 1508, he was sent to a relatively new university in Wittenberg to uh, lecture on Aristotle's uh, ethics. We'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, in 1510, he traveled to Rome on business for his order. And uh, as I understand this trip, as I, as I read him and, and read about him, uh, this was a distressing uh, experience. He went uh, to Rome uh, thinking that it really was the holy city. Uh, if you'd never I guess if you were, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a good analogy because I mean, nobody thinks of, of um, cities as holy anymore, uh, but they really did think of Rome as kind of a city shining on a hill, city of, of seven hills. It's the, it's the seat of the, right, the vicar of Christ on the earth, gathering of holy monks and nuns and priests, a, a place of piety, devotion, obedience, and that's, of course, not at all what he found. What he found was uh, priests 
blaspheming in public. Uh, what he saw were whorehouses. What he saw were uh, indulgences uh, for sale uh, on a scale that he had uh, never seen or uh, of which he was not aware in Germany. And it, it troubled him greatly uh, what he saw. He climbed, at least by legend, the Santa Scala, the steps to St. Peter's Basilica on his knees, saying the Pater Noster, the Our Father, right, Lord's Prayer, at each step in order to free his grandfather from purgatory. And when he arrived at the top, he is said to have been overwhelmed by skepticism. And he said to himself, who knows if it's really true? And he would later agree with the Germans saying that if there is a hell, then Rome is built on top of it. His experience in Rome shook him, I think, uh, deeply and helped to prepare him to question what he had been taught. By 1512, in October of 1512, uh, young Martin was made a doctor of theology, a member of the university se uh, senate, and professor of sacred scripture in the university. He'd been teaching already for uh, a, a few years, but now he is a doctor and he's a full professor in the university. And, uh, and given the chair, uh, um, sometimes translated the chair of biblical theology, it's, uh, he was a lecturer in the Bible is what he was. It's hard to translate. We don't really have a position like this. Essentially, um, he, he simply, his main job was to lecture on scripture. And that's, of course, what he did. And it's a good thing, too, because it was through that that uh, uh, he would have his transformation. Uh, it's, a, it's a struggle to figure out how to articulate the, the, the uh, temptations, the uh, anxiety that he was experiencing in this period, and that in some ways he continued to experience. Uh, and I think it was Bob who pointed this out to me, and I, I ran across this. Uh, to, again, recently, uh, Luther's uh, commentary uh, from 1530, though much later than this, on uh, Psalm 118, verse 17. The verse says, I shall not die, but I shall live. Luther says, and I just read this quotation uh, to give you a sense of, of how he thought about his temptations, his struggles, his anxiety. Uh, touches uh, this verse, verse 17, touches and states the trouble out of which God's hand delivers the righteous, namely death. The righteous surely feel death when they are in mortal danger. Think of, think of the, right, the, when he was on the donkey in uh, 1505. Meeting death eye to eye is not a pleasant uh, draft for the flesh. Death always appears in the company of sin and of the law. One readily understands that the saints are really martyrs, for they must live under the threat of death and wrestle and fight with death. If it does not involve tyrants and the ungodly with fire and sword and prison and, uh, and similar persecutions, it involves the devil himself. He can neither tolerate the word of God nor those who keep and teach it. He besets them in life and death. While the faithful are alive, he uses great attacks on their faith, hope, and love toward God. He beleaguers and storms a heart with fear, doubt, and despair until it shies away from God, hates, and blasphemes him. And the wretched conscience believes that God, the devil, 
death, sin, hell, all creatures uh, are one and have united as uh, its eternal and relentless enemy. Neither the Turk nor the emperor can uh, ever storm a city with such power as the devil uses in attacking the conscience. Uh, that's a, a later passage, as I say, and it actually goes on, uh, uh, but it gives you a, a sense of the, of the way Luther thought about his struggle with sin and his struggle with death and his struggle with uh, fear of a, of a uh, righteous, holy, and consuming God. Luther believed the Bible when it said that our God is a consuming fire. And the problem was he'd been taught a conflicting story. Uh, on the one hand, the church said, yes, the God of the Christian faith is a consuming fire, but on the other hand, he'd also been taught that, well, once you've been baptized and once you begin to cooperate with grace, and this is what we talked about last night, uh, then God uh, is sort of a, a grandfatherly figure. And uh, yes, uh, he regards your, your sin, but he also regards uh, your best efforts. And the impression was given that in a sense, he sort of overlooks your sins. And fundamentally what happened to Luther, I think, was that he came to see that part of the story that he had learned, the second part of the story, that God overlooks your sins really wasn't true. When Luther was in the monastery, he used to go to his father confessor, Johann von Staupitz, and he would confess all of his sins, all the sins that he could think of. Father, forgive me for it's been 37 minutes since my last confession. And he would confess all the sins that he'd committed and, and he used to exhaust von Staupitz. And he would turn around, he would leave the confessional and on the way back to his cell to to beat himself some more and, and, and lay himself down on the floor to mortify the flesh and to fast and to try to find a way to satisfy God and please God and sanctify himself and cooperate with grace sufficiently so as to be able to present himself perhaps finally, maybe one day, if he were holy enough, if he were righteous enough, he would see some monk who was not, maybe had fallen, you know, supposed to be scrubbing the floor but who had fallen asleep and he would think, oh, that lazy fellow and then he would realize that, that he had thought ill of his brother and he'd have to turn around and go back to the confessional and confess his sins. And finally, Staupitz got disgusted with him and said, Martin, go away when you, and come back when you have something to confess. And the only reason Van Staupitz could say that was because he had, to, to some degree, although his theology was actually pretty good in some ways, but he had bought into this uh, schizophrenic story about God. He's both a holy and consuming God, but also a grandfatherly God who overlooks sin. You have to understand that, that uh, the church by this point had adopted a doctrine uh, that said that we can and must propitiate, we ourselves must propitiate the wrath of God. In the ninth century, a monk uh, named Radbertus had argued and ultimately persuasively in the Western church that at the prayer of, of uh, over, the, over the supper, the elements are transformed from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ so that they look like bread, taste like wine, but those are only the accents. That which makes the bread what it is is no longer there. That which makes the wine what it is is no longer there. It's really the body and blood of Christ. And of course, we know that as the doctrine of transubstantiation. And by the 13th century, the church was teaching in the theology that Luther had learned is that not only are the elements transubstantiated in the prayer of consecration, 
but that by using, by participating in this, and by, by making this memorial sacrifice, this ritual daily memorial sacrifice, the wrath of God is being turned away by what we do. That the acts of penance that we do, when a priest assigns penance, they do turn away the wrath of God. So on the one hand, God has wrath that needs to be turned away, that Christ had not actually accomplished this wrath turning. He had not actually expiated all your sins and, not, and, and had not actually turned away all the wrath of God. He had simply made it possible. Right? You, you, you must really understand this this morning. That the story that the medieval church told is that Christ made your salvation possible if you do your part. And part of the way they were able to say that is through this schizophrenic story about who and what God is. And as I say, Luther tended to believe the first part and tended to doubt the second. And this is what fueled his fears and his anxieties. And it's not, and it wasn't an unreasonable anxiety. Would you gamble that the second part of the story was correct? If you thought the first part of the story about God is correct, it's true that he's a holy, consuming fire, would you gamble that he's also a, a, a genial grandfather who overlooks your sins? Because if, you're, if, you, if you take that gamble and you're wrong, the price was very high indeed. So that was the struggle with which Luther was struggling. And you, you, you need to get this because we live in a time, as we always have and always will, when people are still peddling the story that Jesus has made salvation possible for those who do their part. This is a very popular story, right? In our own federation, right, the United Reformed Churches, we have had ministers basically teaching this story. And we've had to discipline them. We've had synod actually speak to these issues repeatedly, right? Praise God for a, a godly synod, right? Godly uh, el uh, synods, elders and ministers gathering together to stand up for the gospel and the word of God as we confess it. Praise God for, by the way, for godly lay people like Hank and Elsie Navis. Some of you might know them. They stood up for the gospel when people didn't want to hear it. Well, maybe we'll come back to them. Because Hank and Elsie Navis, godly lay people, they understood that, that, that uh, it's not true to say that Jesus made salvation possible for those who do their part because they knew their Heidelberg Catechism. They knew their Belgian Confession. They knew the Canons of Dort. And even though, even though people told them to be quiet, right? ministers and elders told them to be quiet, and entire classes told them to be quiet, they weren't quiet because they said, our conscience is bound by the word of God. And they took it to synod. Did you know that? I bet you don't know this story. They took it to synod. And they said, we believe the Heidelberg Catechism the Belgian Confession of the Canons of Dort because they knew Jesus didn't just die to make salvation possible. So I don't want you to think this is just history. I'm here this morning teaching you history so that you'll know what the truth is and then so that you will be just as courageous as Hank and Elsie Navis. Right? Just like Dr. Luther discovered that this schizophrenic story about God as a congenial old man who overlooks your sins it's not true. Well, 
Uh, so the question comes then, well, when did Luther become a Protestant, and when did he have his breakthrough, and how did it all happen? Uh, the scholars write about his termerlaveness, his tower experience, as if he became a, a Protestant in one shattering psychological, emotional experience all at once and overnight. Uh, that's, uh, that's not true. But it's a popular story, and people like to tell this story because, it, in a way, it helps to marginalize Luther. In other words, if, the, if it isn't the case that he gradually became a Protestant through the reading, preaching, studying of the Word of God, but if it was really the product of a shattering experience born out of his, his anxieties, then we can dismiss him as a misfit, a guy with some psychological, emotional problems, as one of my neighbors told my children when they were little, Luther became a Protestant because he couldn't control himself sexually. We can marginalize him that way. Well, that's, that's not exactly what happened at all. Uh, the Luther, uh, there's a group of scholars known uh, together corporately as the Luther Renaissance argued that Luther became a Protestant uh, somewhere 15, some of them said as early as 1512, between 1512 and 1515. But as I say, um, Luther himself said that, that he really came to understand things and pull it all together in 1519. And we know this from the preface to his Latin works from 1545, in which he said it was in 1519. That's what he's talking about, quoting here. Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms again. I'll come back and explain this. I felt confident that I was now more experienced since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. And I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1, the justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, the justice of God, which by the use and custom of all my teachers I've been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active justice. And here he's just reflecting on what he'd been taught to say, that God says what he says because you are what you are. You remember that from last night. God can only say righteous about you if you are actually, inherently, personally, intrinsically righteous. That is, the justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. Remember propitiations and expiations? I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my prayers, my self-flagellation, my acts of penance, acts of contrition, offerings in the Mass, the ritual, right, memorial, sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. I did not love, no, I hated the just God who punishes sinners in silence. If I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God keep sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel? Notice how he's thinking. The Ten Commandments he's, he was taught were the old law, and the gospel he was taught is the new law. This is huge. For, for Martin Luther, as for every medieval Christian, the Bible was all law. 
It was old law and it was new law. And the difference is there's more grace under the new law to help you meet the test. But you have to meet the test by grace and cooperation with grace. Remember what he'd been taught in university. To those, to those who do what lies within them, God does not deny grace. And so the gospel, you already have the Ten Commandments barking at your heels, and here comes the gospel. And for Luther, as a medieval, the gospel is even worse than the Ten Commandments because Jesus says if you've even looked at a woman with the intention of lusting, you've already committed adultery. And the monastic law, the monastic rule that I didn't read for you, but it actually goes on at some length about what to do, how to avoid looking at, at a person of the opposite sex. You boys, this is how you, and if you do look at a girl, you can't stare at her, and if you do stare at her, this is what you do. And so he labored under this guilt. Through the gospel, and through the gospel, listen to this, threaten us with his justice and his wrath. This is how I was raging with a wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1, and I anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated day and night on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it. Uh, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. And they began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God, I began to understand that yeah, in this verse, the justice of God, that by which the, person li the just person lives, is a gift of God that is by faith. That was the breakthrough, and we'll come back to see how that happened. It is by faith, and I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of, of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice. They had distinguished between active justice, active justice and passive justice. Right? And by, when he says passive justice, he means here receptive justice, not something that is being formed in me by grace and cooperation with grace. That would be active righteousness. This is passive righteousness. This is something that is accomplished for me and received by me by grace alone through faith alone. And he, he explains, that is, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. He had been taught that Faith is not what we think of principally as resting, receiving, and trusting, and, and they're out of that, right, producing sanctity and out of that good works, right? We know that from Heidelberg 21 and Heidelberg 86 and so forth. But Luther had been taught to think of faith as essentially another way of talking about sanctification. It really was code for obedience, it wasn't even sanctification so much as obedience. I mean, in a sense, they, they didn't distinguish sanctification and obedience. Sanctification was obedience. So when someone said faith to Luther, they, he heard them talking about works. Right? He didn't hear them talking principally about resting, receiving, trusting, a certain knowledge and a hearty trust, right? Heidelberg 21, that's not what he heard. All at once... I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the Scriptures from memory and found the other terms had analogous meanings. For example, the work of God, that is, 
what God works in us, the power of God by which he makes us powerful, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. I exalted in this sweetest word of mine the justice of God as much as, I was, as before I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. And afterward, I read Augustine on the spirit in the letter in which I found that what I had not dared hope for. I discovered that he too interpreted the justice of God in a similar way, namely, that with, uh, that with which God clothes us when he justifies us, although he had said it imperfectly. You get a sense of, of how Luther understood his own, his own experience. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll probably have to uh, do this in the next session, but let me uh, finish this, this first session as we uh, sort of running up to 1519 uh, by saying that uh, Luther gradually became a Protestant over the years, 1513 or even 1512, um, really to 1521. I'm going to break it up for the purposes of this morning and, and uh, divide it between uh, 1513 to 1519 and then 1519 and after. But it was through a course of, of lectures on the Psalms and then Romans and then Galatians and then Hebrews and then the Psalms again. And as he says, it was in that second course of lectures on the Psalms where uh, everything came together. But he gradually put the pieces together. And it's important that we mark this because it's in that course of lectures that we see the basic building blocks of Protestantism. It's in these lectures that we see the basic building blocks of Protestantism on which all of the confessional Protestants essentially agreed. God is absolutely sovereign we are utterly and thoroughly corrupt by nature. He learned that in the Psalms. He learned, basically, uh, as he lectured, after he lectured through the Psalms, he became young, restless, and Augustinian. Is what he did, which is where a lot of folks are today. And that's good. That's a starting place. It's not a good stopping place, but it's a good starting place. And then as he lectured through Romans, he, he saw that Abraham was justified uh, by grace alone, on the basis of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He had been taught a doctrine of imputation, but now he took that doctrine of imputation and he turned it on its head. You remember last night, if you were here last night, we talked about imputation. He'd been taught that it's God imputes perfection to our best efforts, and he realized, no, God imputes Jesus perfect righteousness, Jesus' best efforts to us. And of course, you know this from Heidelberg 60, don't you? Well, um, so I say all that to help you understand uh, the significance of the 95 Theses. When he published those, or when he mailed them, actually, he didn't nail them probably to the church door at Wittenberg, but when he mailed them to the Archbishop Mainz, uh, then they were stolen and translated into German without his knowledge or permission, and then published, in effect, on the internet. They went viral, as we say. Uh, he said he was still, uh, well, the modern translation is uh, an enthusiastic papist. The older translation uh, was a right, frantic, and roaring papist. I like that translation better. So that, and he really was, if you read the 95 Theses, the, the significance of them is not so much what they said, although there are maybe hints of what was to come. So it's in a way, it's unfortunate that we very long ago chose to celebrate 
October 31. We should much rather celebrate what, uh, April 18, 1521. So I think we should get together again in April of 2021. That would be the proper day. But nobody asked me, and here we're sort of stuck with October 31st. All right, well, we'll I'll, I'll stop here and uh, pick up, even though we haven't quite got to 1519, we're at time, and I don't want to run over. So we'll, we'll take a break. Boss, do you, do you have instructions? I want to try to keep to schedule. <laughs>